Heavenly Father, uh, we know that, again, it is a, a gift of your kindness that we are gathered together. It is a, a gift of your kindness that we have been called together. And so, Father, we don't take just even our fellowship for granted. We don't take for granted the opportunity that we have uh, today to, to gather together and to become students of the Bible and to, to love you together and to, love, and to study you together and to pursue you together. And so, Father, I pray that there would be a sense of togetherness among us tonight, that there would be a sense of, of unity as we dive into the Word. We know that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of unity, and so, Father, I pray that He would continue just to, just to, to work in our hearts, that we could just enjoy one another and enjoy what we have in Christ. Father, I pray for those this week that perhaps are having a trying week and a difficult week, that you, this would be a reprieve for them, that they would be able to take a, a fresh uh, breath tonight and, uh, and maybe even stop worrying about the, the world's troubles and just, just to be able to think deeply about you, think deeply about your word. I pray for those tonight that maybe you're on a mountaintop, that Lord, you would only fan the flame uh, and that you would just continue just to p- push them uh, toward even deeper worship of you and your glory and uh, just help us to be rich and enjoyable tonight. We ask these things now in Christ Jesus' name, amen. All right, so kind of a, an update on the class. So we've got two weeks together that we're going to be able, that we're going to kind of come together and, and finish up this semester of interpreting the Bible. Let me get these for you guys. One for you. One for you. Uh-huh. So we got about, we've got two weeks next week. Uh, I'm, and we're going to talk about the same subject both weeks, uh, and so I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But next week, I'm going to be I have an opportunity to preach to all of the youth ministries of Calhoun County. At, at a, we have you know they do the big D now thing called Unite, and so they're all going to kind of come together and have an end of the year thing. And so I'm going to be um, at First Baptist Oxford preaching to them. And so you guys will jump in with Aaron, and then when we come back, we're going to finish up what we're talking about tonight. Uh, and then we'll kind of start entering into a different schedule for the summer. We'll have some fellowships together, some time to eat together. We'll have VBS, uh, we'll have youth camp, and uh, we're going to read through one of those small books like we've done in the past. We're going to read through one called Evangelism. Um, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Uh, but I think it'll be very tangible. I think it'll be very helpful to you. So, and then when we come back into the school year, we're going to pick right back up with hermeneutics. And this year, this, this semester, we've talked a lot kind of big picture and kind of getting, our, getting our, uh, our handles on exactly where the Bible came from and why we can trust the Bible and the, uh, the clarity of the Bible. And tonight we're going to get a little more specific. But when we come back in the, at the, in the next semester, we're really going to just dive in hands-on. Um, and so we're going to talk about every, all the different, or at least most of the different literary genres that we find in the Bible. And then we're going to practice. We're going to get on-the-job training on how to actually implement these things. And so I'm really, really excited about that. You know, the best way to become a teacher is what? To be a student teacher, you know? The, be- the best way to learn how to work on a car is to work on a car uh, and to watch YouTube videos. So it's kind of the same thing with studying the Bible, that it would, it's, it would be easy just to come and to hear me ramble off a lot of principles every week, um, but it's another thing to implement and to apply those principles. And so I think that's a much more valuable skill and a much more uh, valuable class. And so we're going to kind of shift in that direction in the second semester, but I think all the things that we have covered this semester have been really critical and crucial um, to make that more effective. So I'm really excited. So tonight we're going to begin what to talk about 
for the next two times that we get together, the last two times, on how it is that we see Christ in all the Scripture. How it is that we can see Christ in all the Scripture. And honestly, this is one of the subjects that I am most passionate about when it comes to studying the, the Bible, when it comes to understanding hermeneutics. And I think I'm most excited about it because I kind of discovered this late and uh, I was already in ministry, and like this kind of came onto my my scene, and it just rocked my world. And I felt like I was able just to see a veil lifted off the Bible that allowed me to understand it in ways that I was never able to understand it before, and to preach it and to teach it in ways that were more helpful and that kind of brought me to worship more and more. And it did away with a lot of those sermons that. You should do this, do this, do this, and more of, because this is what is true about Christ, this can now be true about you. And, and, and it allowed me to kind of see things through a more Christ-centered lens, which makes sense when we see the Bible as a more Christ-centered book, right? So we're going to talk kind of big picture about how to see Christ in all scriptures this week, and then in two weeks when we get together for our last time, I'm going to give some more uh, specific principles. <coughs> I'm going to phrase it in questions that we can ask of different passages that can help us to kind of understand their Christ-centeredness and understand how it is um, that we can see Jesus. Because there's some warnings, and this thing can get off the rails a little bit and get off the tracks a little bit and go in a direction that can actually be pretty detrimental to our Bible study and pretty, pretty dangerous to our Bible study. So, so we want to make sure that we have good, healthy safeguards and good, healthy uh, principles uh, in place for us. So there's a study called biblical theology. So there's kind of two different ways that you can study theology. There's systematic theology and there's biblical theology. So systematic theology is when you take a subject that the Bible talks about and you kind of organize every single thought that the Bible has about that subject in one location. So maybe it's the person of Christ, okay? So we would call that Christology. And so then you would take everything the Bible says about the person of Christ and you would organize it. And then you would create subcategories even beneath that about the various things that the Bible says about Christ, about like Christ eternal, Christ incarnate, Christ as human, Christ as God. So you would take all of these, these subcategories, and so, but you would have one topic, and then you would just exhaust or attempt to exhaust what the Bible says about that topic. You might move on to man, and then you would go through man's in God's image, and man in his fall, and man in his redemption, and man in his restoration, all of these various things that you can kind of cover. Okay, So that would be systematic theology. The other school of theology would be called biblical theology. And biblical theology is aimed at kind of pointing us toward the big picture of the Bible, of how every little component of the Bible, every little, every chapter, verse, segment of the Bible contributes to the overall story of the Bible. And honestly, I love systematic theology, but I am all about some biblical theology because I think that is really just the key that kind of unlocks the whole thing. As a matter of fact, systematic theology flows out of biblical theology most truthfully. And so that's really what we're going to be dealing with a lot in these next two weeks. That's, that's the goal here. Is what I want us to see is that the Bible is one unified, cohesive story, not a collection of stories. 
that when we come to the Bible, what we have is not a whole bunch of random stories about a whole bunch of random people that are collected together and bound with a single spine and a single book, but instead what we have is a book that is cohesive with the same story, with the same plot line, with the same main character from beginning to end. And when we begin to understand the Bible that way, it will change the way we interpret the Bible. It will change the way that we read the Bible. It will change the way that we study the Bible. What happens for most of us, unintentionally, is we, we, we kind of come to the Bible and when we want to study about, when we want to go to the Old Testament, we think about David and we think about Daniel and we think about Moses and we think about Abraham. Well, Moses, Abraham, Daniel, and David are not the main characters of the Old Testament. They're not even the main characters of books they wrote or books that are named after them. And so what we do accidentally is we kind of compartmentalize the Bible and kind of break it up. So we think that, well, this book's about this guy, and this book's about this guy, and this book's about this guy, and this tells this story, and this tells this story, and this tells this story. But the truth is, is that all of them are about God. All of them. The main character in every book of every, of, and of every chapter of every verse of every book is God. And the storyline of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the storyline of God's redemption of a fallen creation. The whole storyline. So, so if we start in Genesis and we go to Revelation, what we're going to see is the story of redemption progressively being unveiled, progressively being revealed to human beings by the sovereignty and grace of God through a book so that we understand why things are as they are, why we are as we are, who we really were intended to be, and how we can once again achieve what we were designed to achieve. Who God is and how we can relate to God and be, can be reconciled to God and why we need to be reconciled to God. And even why, even after we've been reconciled to God, why we still face struggles and why we f- still face difficulties. And kind of even a timeline about all of that, right? So, so the storyline of the Bible is the same. The storyline of the Bible, the main character of the Bible, does not change whether we're in the Law of Moses, we're in First and Second Samuel, or Esther, or Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, the Prophets, the Gospels, the Epistles, the uh, the uh, and and the and the Revelation. The, the, it's all the same. It's all the same. And when we understand this. When we begin to understand that the Bible is a cohesive book about one character with one storyline, we come up with an unshakable, irrevocable interpretive principle that we have to study, in, that, that we have to uh, apply in every, and it is this, that if Jesus is the main character of every chapter of every book of the Bible, then our first responsibility as an interpreter is to understand how this verse points us to him for greater understanding and delight in him. That if the Bible is about one character and about one storyline, then every passage of scripture that we study, whether it is in the Old Testament or in the New then we have to come and we have to ask the question, how does this fit into the big picture of redemption? How does this point us to the main character? 
How does this describe to us what the storyline of the Bible, how does this fit into what is going on? How does this contribute to what God is trying to teach us? And God is wanting us to understand so that we might be reconciled to him or so that we might know him and enjoy him and be even more satisfied in him. When we do this, it, it can really help us uh, avoid some, some, some subtle but dangerous pitfalls when we study the Bible. Let me give you an example. One would be something that I would call moralism. That, that when, we, when we start missing the big picture and we start just, just locking in on a particular story and we kind of zone in and think, man, this story's about this guy and this is what's happening, then what happens and when we divorce it from the big picture is what we're left with, say, let's use, for example, the story of David, is we're left with, with, with Bible study or with uh, Sunday school teaching or with preaching that says this, this is what David did. Do this like David. Or... Don't do this like David. Now, what's the problem with that? You don't need Jesus to do that. You don't need Jesus to be like David. You don't need the Holy Spirit to do those things. The resurrection is completely unnecessary if the only thing we get from the Bible is that we should not have an affair like David. There are unbelievers, pagans, who do not even believe in God that don't cheat on their wives. We don't have to have the resurrection for that. We don't have to have the gospel for that. Now, that is a Christian principle that's important. Like, it's not that we are to be devoid of morality or completely unconcerned with morality. It's that we aren't to start with morality. We are to start with the storyline. We are to start with the main character. Because what's the issue here? The Bible story is not about you should do more of this and less of this. That is not the storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible is God has done this because you weren't capable of doing this. So look to him and rest in him and enjoy him and love him and be forgiven by him and have salvation in him and relationship with him and enjoy him forever. Like that's the storyline of the Bible. So if we go, to, if we go to, to 1 Samuel and we take away from it moralism, then we're not just missing the gospel, we're perverting the gospel. We're camouflaging the gospel. We're not teaching the gospel. We're not enjoying the gospel. And it can lead us into despair. And all we do is come away thinking, well, I got more rules to follow. I got more things I got to do and less things I've, I can't do. And I, like, it just keeps piling on, right? But when we understand how this thing fits into the big picture and how this thing is connected to the, the larger narrative that's in play here, the larger plot line of the Bible, then we can say, okay, now I, and so in, in, in because of what the Lord has done and because of what I see about his, his divine attributes and because I understand my sinfulness and the need for that to be overcome by the Lord, then this is how my thinking has to change. And this is how my life has to change. Not so that I measure up to God, but so that I bring God glory with my life, so that God takes delight in me and pleasure in me. Not so that my standing in his house is increased, but because I already have standing there as a son, as a daughter, I'm going to live these things out, right? So, so again, it's doing away with the half-truth of moralism, and instead it's showing us that 
because we are the redeemed, because God is God and we are us and he has stepped into our lives and given us to the Holy Spirit, now these things flow out as fruit as we pursue God and run after him with all of our hearts, right? So, so there, see, moralism is a half-truth. That's why we're so drawn to it. But it's missing the bigger picture. It's missing the storyline of the Bible. I don't want you just to take my word for it, that Jesus is the main character of the Bible. And I will use Jesus and God interchangeably there because Jesus is God. Um, he, is the second, he is the second person of the, of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead. But for our purposes, let's, let's speak now specifically of Jesus. In John 5, 39, and all of these are in your notes, <coughs> and I was afraid I would skip over something, so I printed those out. You'll be able to take those home and kind of review um, some of the things that we've talked about. But John 5, 39 says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, again, let's go back and let's do some review here. When Jesus says the scriptures, what is he talking about? The Old Testament. The New Testament is, not, is being written. It's not, as Jesus is saying this, right? Like, as a matter of fact, when Jesus said this, the book of Matthew was written several years after Jesus' death. So when Jesus is talking here, he is not talking about the Bible as we hold in our hands. I mean, he is, but not most directly. He is directly talking about the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Law of Moses. He's talking about the writings. He's talking about the wisdom literature. He's talking about the prophets. He, he's talking about all of those things. And I, I point that out, because, and that's really going to be a main theme tonight. We understand that Jesus is the main character of the New Testament, I think, most of the time. But we really miss this on the Old Testament because it's harder. It doesn't come as naturally. It's, it's, it's before Christ is incarnate, right? It's before Christ is, 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 it takes on flesh and steps into the, into the earth. And so it's, it's much more abstract for us, right? It's much more kind of floating out there in voodoo country, like James Spann talks about, you know? Like it's out there somewhere, and we're like, what does that mean, you know? But here's Jesus saying, all of the Old Testament is bearing witness to me. Bearing witness to me. Luke 24, 27 and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, that's being Jesus, interpreted to them that in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures. Again, he's talking about the Old Testament. Luke 24, 44. Then he, meaning Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again. That's the whole of the Old Testament. The, those were the three segments. We've talked about that before, right? That the, you had the law of Moses, then you had what was the writing. Sometimes it was called the Psalms because the Psalms was the largest of the books. And then you had the prophets beginning with Isaiah and going through Micah. Acts 26, 22 and 23. This is Paul. He says, To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You know what Paul is saying here? And this is profound. Paul is saying that I preach the gospel. And do you know where I got the gospel I got the gospel from the Old Testament. I'm preaching to you, the Jews, your gospel. 
I'm preaching to you the gospel that you all have been holding fast to and studying and loving and memorizing and rejecting and disobeying for a thousand years. I'm, I'm just pointing you back to the gospel that is already there. So we don't think of the gospel in terms of the Old Testament. But the gospel is in the Old Testament as much as the gospel is in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the curriculum that we use, the gospel project, that's one of the things that it's aiming to do, is to show us that the gospel is in the book of Judges as much as the gospel is in the book of Romans. Like the gospel is from beginning to end. It is all there. So tonight, what I want to do, and spend the rest of our time doing, is I want us to, uh, to see how it is, some, some principles, some, some truths about the Old Testament that can kind of help us understand um, how we can interpret Christ in the Old Testament and kind of some big picture ideas that will help us have handles when we come in in two weeks and try to get a bit more specific. The, the outline that I'm giving to you um, is not original to me. There's a guy named Ian, uh, Ian du, I'm trying to, how do you pronounce it, Duquette, Duquette, or something like that. I, it's, a hard, it's an awkward name. Um, but he came up with it, and it's in his, what's that? Do good. Ian, do good. Yes, it's pretty good. Uh, but it's anyway, he's a professor at Westminster Seminary. And they produced a book on seeing Christ in all the scriptures. And they've kind of been at the forefront of this kind of hermeneutic, what they would call an apostolic hermeneutic for, for quite some time. All right, so the first principle that I want us to study, and you'll see it there uh, in your notes, is that the center of the Old Testament is Christ. So this is basically a restatement of, of what we have We've already said, he, he phrases it like this, that the Old Testament is most fundamentally a book about the promise of a coming Messiah through whose sufferings God will establish his glorious eternal kingdom. Now, I wonder how many of us would, would, have, would have on the front end framed up the Old Testament like that. I wonder if I would have asked you what, just summarize the whole Old Testament in a single sentence, I wonder what you would have come up with. I wonder if you might say that it was about God and his people, because that's, that's good, that's true. Or I wonder if you, you might say it's about a really good God and a lot of really bad people and how all that works together, you know. Uh, it's about a law or it's about a creation. I, I wonder what you might have said. But he says, and I think he's right, that the Old Testament is about a suffering Christ. That the Old Testament is about a suffering Christ who will ultimately redeem the world and be glorified. I don't know that that's our default. I don't, I don't know that that is kind of what, what, is, what is easy, what is natural for us to come. Now, what I think is dangerous here is when I, when I tell us that Christ is in all of Scripture, I think what we can start thinking is, okay, now I've got to figure out the code i got to go all history channel on this thing and figure out like how all the, the, the various letters and, and colors and verse numbers align to give me some kind of you know, Da Vinci Code situation so that I can see the, the face of Jesus in the middle of, of the Song of Solomon. Because, man, if you're telling me the Song of Solomon is about Jesus, I'm having trouble getting there, right? But that... That's not at all what I'm talking about. As a matter of fact, I think that would be a very miserable way to have to study the Bible. I, I, I think that God would have to be an ungracious God to give us a book that is filled with a code that some, somebody somewhere had, was able to crack and he has some Gnostic knowledge that if he is good or if he is, that he'll share it with us and when he's not in a good mood, he won't share it with us. Like, I don't think that that is a gracious picture of the Lord. 
And yet a lot of people, when they think about Jesus in the Old Testament, that's what they're thinking is, I've got to figure out all these allegories and how this thing leads to this thing, leads to this thing, leads to this thing, and I ain't just that smart, I ain't that smart, you know? Or, man, I'm tired when I get home. And when I get home is when I open my Bible. And I've been a Honda all day, and I can't open up my Bible and try to connect all these these little things like that. That's not at all what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that every single passage of the Old Testament speaks in some way to God's plan to save us and redeem the world through Jesus. That everything in the Old Testament doesn't necessarily mean that, that you know, we saw the color red here and Jesus had blood, red blood on the cross and that's how it points to Jesus. Not that kind of thing. When I say that all of the Old Testament is about Jesus, what I'm saying is that all of the Old Testament points to us to either our need for Jesus, God's plan for Jesus, God's provision of Jesus, or to Jesus himself. That it is speaking to the bigger picture, the, the story of redemption. And because Jesus is the embodiment of redemption, any way this shows us about the goodness of God or the attributes of God or the truth about God or the fallenness of ourselves or the truth about ourselves or the plan of God to overcome us through his own attributes, like any way all of that fits together, that's the Old Testament pointing to Christ. That's the Old Testament pointing to Christ. And the point that I'm making is that every single verse, every single passage of the Old Testament does just that every single passage of the old testament is one step closer one one incremental bit of revelation progressively clarifying how god is going to save the world progressively clarifying how it is that we're going to be able to be right with god forever so let, let's let's talk this a little bit let, i want you to see here and understand that jesus is the center of the old testament is that he was there from the very beginning all right, so let's read Genesis 3, 14 and 15 together. It, sh- it should be right there in your passages, uh, in, in your notes, or you can turn, uh, turn there in your Bibles. But Jesus, Genesis 3, 14 and 15 says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your, be- on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, why is that significant? Right out of the gate. We're three chapters into this whole book, man. And right there, we get the whole storyline of the Bible. We get the whole storyline of the Bible. He's saying, this is what the book's going to be about. This is the story. This is what God is doing, all right? Chapter one, what happens? God creates the world. He creates everything that's in it, all of it, out of the imagination of God, through the spoken word of God, as an action of Trinitarian power, the Godhead taking divine action to speak into existence all of the world. Everything that is, everything seen, everything unseen, everything known, everything unknown, everything from your wife to the, to the flowers on top of some mountain in some place, you'll never see and you'll never know, right? All of it, the imagination, the creative action of God. 
At the climax of this creation, he makes man and woman in his own image to be his representatives, his good and gracious representatives on the earth with whom God will have a special, intimate relationship that is different than any other part of, tra- of, of creation in heaven or on earth. That we are to be his divine image bearers. We get into chapter 2. It talks about how this relationship is going gonna, is gonna to work. It describes the paradise that the, that the man and the woman find themselves in. God creates marriage and brings man and woman together, completing each other. God, in his grace, gives them one, one command that they would demonstrate to him that they are dependent upon him and that they trust him and that they are devoted to him to not eat of a single tree. And yet they do just that, exerting their desire to be in control of themselves, to rebel against God, and to take their lives into their own hands, to see themselves as as being both autonomous from God and in some way equal with God. And God being true to his word, God being a God of integrity and honor and justice, when we come into chapter 3, comes down on them with the curse of death, just as he had promised them on the front end. Bringing all of the creation under the curse, as we read here, that the creation would moan and people would die and animals would die and ultimately pedophilia would enter the earth and cancer would enter the earth and abortion would enter the earth and heartbreak and divorce and all of the wickedness that we now know that keeps us awake and not and destroys our families and destroys our lives would enter into the world under the curse of God because of man's rebellion against him. But as we read in chapter 3, The curse doesn't come without a promise. The curse doesn't come without a promise. That God, though he created everything good, and though man sinned against him and everything fell, under the curse the Lord justly gave, he would provide a way in which he himself would overcome his own curse. Did you see it? How is it? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to damage him. You're going to hit him on the heel. His life is going to be harder than it could have been. Harder than it should have been. He's going to have distance between me and him. There's going to be suffering. But ultimately, there's going to be a child born Ultimately, there's going to be a seed of man that is going to come and he is going to crush your head. And all of the reign of terror that you have had will be finally disposed of and you will get your ultimate demise for which you are owed. So the creation comes under a curse and yet right there in the midst of the curse, what do we have? We have the gospel. We have the gospel. Three chapters in, and we already have the gospel. We already have Jesus, who will be the seed of Eve, to come and to crush the head of the serpent on resurrection day and finally on consummation day. This is the storyline of the Bible. And just like any good author, God gets it out there really quick. He makes it clear. 
that this story is not about a weak man and a weak woman that can't follow a mighty God. This is about redemption. This is about the one who from the beginning was promised to overcome the curse for our good and for his glory. This is about the Lord Jesus we come to understand when he is incarnate. And so we can see from the very beginning, right out of the gate, that the Old Testament, and in fact, all of the Bible is fundamentally about Christ. He is the main character of the story. It is fundamentally about redemption. It is fundamentally about overcoming the curse of man, the sin of man, because God is good and God is gracious and God is sovereign even though we wanted control, right? The second, the second principle. The Old Testament had a message for its original hearers, not just for us. The Old Testament had a message for its original hearers, not just us. So here's what we can do. As we really, and, and, and I can even think back to sermons after, as I was really kind of wrestling with this and trying to put this together, is what we can unfortunately do is we can kind of like, like flatline the Bible, okay? So now... If, if, if we misappropriate this, or if we misapply this principle or, or take this too far, then what we do is we come to a book and we think, all right, well, this is just, you know, like, this is, how does this point to the, the resurrection? And, like, we just fly through that and we blow straight past its immediate context. We blow straight past the fact that this book was written to specific people at a specific place for a specific reason at a specific time. And so we're so busy of connecting it, we want to move so quickly to connect it to the big picture that we only see it on its most shallow level. That we really miss the glory of how, how in such detail and with such power it points to the bigger picture because we got there so fast. That what we need to understand is that every book of the Old Testament is like every book of the New Testament. You know, we, if you remember, and we're going to talk about this more, when we talked about the epistles a little bit, we said those are occasional letters, right? That they're written for specific occasions to address specific things. And the Old Testament is the same way. It's the same way. The, the, the Pentateuch, the, that, the Pentateuch that, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, okay? The Jews are serious about the Pentateuch, okay? That's the, you know, that, so when we, th those are the books that were put together by Moses. Well, what for what purpose were they put together by Moses? To prepare God's people for the promised land, right? It, it, it was, to, it was to, to prepare them for their, for their entering into Canaan under the governance of the Lord Almighty. To remember where they had come from. To, to remember the covenant that God had made with them. And to prepare them to live in covenant joy as a nation forever. Right? Now we know that doesn't work out just like that. But that's the reason that, that those books exist. And so if we miss that and we go like straight, like straight to the big picture we, and we blow through all the details, well, we miss all the little nuances and all of the, 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 the multitudes of ways that the details point us to all the, the, the details of the gospel so that it comes into to greater clarity. See, what I want for all of us is I want all of us to slowly see the depths of the gospel in new light. You know, like you start and you think, and, and you start with like, Jesus saves me. And it's powerful. Like if a kid 
just gets that, they're saved, right? They're, they're transformed. Like Jesus saves me. And you can sing in church until, until uh, the cows come home because like that's enough. Like Jesus saves me. And that's the gospel. And that's beautiful and that's powerful. But then what happens as you mature in the faith, you pull back one layer and you see the gospel again. And you see it a little bit clearer and you see another, another, another uh, layer of the supremacy of Christ and the beauty of Christ. And what it's like that experience almost all over again. And so you worship and you sing. You thought, man, I never saw it like that before. I never thought about it like that before. And then you're staring at that and you're enjoying it. And then you can go another layer and another layer and another layer. Like, the gospel is not shallow. The gospel is not shallow. There are new things for us to discover about the gospel every second of every day for the rest of not our lives, but of eternity. And we are never going to find the end of it. There are new reasons to worship Jesus that we are going to be discovering from now for the next, I don't know, 100 trillion years to the infinite power. It's amazing, right? And so we don't want to like, we don't want to like, Take shortcuts to the big picture. Let me, let me give you, let me try to clarify this with an example. All right, so let's think about the book of Esther. All right, we preached through Esther a year or two ago. And so, so Esther is a book, and it's the only book in the Bible that never even mentions the word God. So it's Martin Luther wanted to strike it from the canons. Like it made him very uncomfortable. It's a, it's, 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 it's a strange book, you know, right? But if we read the book of Esther, then we could say, this, that God works through Mordecai and Esther to ultimately de de deliver his people, which he does. This points us to the fact that God delivers his people through the, through the extinction that sin threatens by Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, so that's the big picture of Esther. If you'll remember, the people of God in Esther are facing extinction under a wicked king named Ahasuerus. He has issued a decree uh, that, that has said that every Jew in all of the kingdom, which is basically all of the known world, is to be wiped from the face of the earth. And so we can come to that, and if we want to just jump to the big picture, and this is right, this is true, this is good. Like, if you don't get anything else, you should get this. It is that God made provision for the salvation of his people by working through Mordecai and Esther, Right? But y'all, there's a lot more in Esther than just that. There's a lot more in Esther to just that. Esther has a lot more to teach us about the gospel than just that. Esther has a lot more to teach us about Christ than just that. What We can come to this and say, well, what's happening here? Why was Esther written to the Jews? What, how would a Jew relate to this? Like, what's going on in their minds? And a Jew is reading this, and in their mind they're thinking, well, all of the promises of God, the very covenant that God has made with us, is in, is in limbo here. How can I know that, that God is trustworthy if we are facing extinction? Oh, God made a way. God made a way, and so it speaks to the promise-keeping power of God. It speaks to, it's, it, it speaks to the, the permanence of the covenants that God makes with his people. Uh, a, a Jew might come, they're, they're writing this, and they're in a situation that's very similar to that of Exodus, right? They're, they're in exile. They're, they're in bondage to, to Persia like they were in bondage to Egypt. And so a Jew is coming here, and he's thinking, all right, when are you going to part the Red Sea? When's Moses going to show up? 
When, when is bread going to rain down from heaven? When are the locusts going to hang out at Ahasuerus' palace? And so they're reading this and they're thinking like, that's not happening. Those things aren't coming. And there's a reason that God's name is never mentioned. It's because one of the main themes of Esther is that God works through ordinary people and ordinary events to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. So much so that most of the time you don't even know that it's him. You can't even sense that it's him unless you are looking beneath all of the surfaces of your life and in the backgrounds of life. And so we learn something about the providence of God and how he, how he manipulates evil to his good. Man, y'all, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That God is manipulating evil for his own purposes and his own glory? That's the cross. And was it, not, was it miraculous means or ordinary means that took Jesus to the cross? It was wicked men and soldiers and nails. It was ordinary means. This is the gospel. But we can run so quickly to the big picture that we miss a lot of the glory that's there and a lot of the beauty that's there. And so when we come to the Old Testament, as we want to find how it relates to Christ, what we need to remember is that the Old Testament had a message for its original hearers, not just for us. The next thing would be that the Old Testament writers did not fully understand everything about which they wrote. Okay? He says it this way. He says, some aspects about God's purposes in Christ necessarily remain veiled throughout the Old Testament period, only to be clarified through the coming of the Son. All right, so imagine with me that there is going to be a great summit of the prophets, okay? This isn't like, so, and imagine it's at about 10 BC, okay? So this is like 10 years before Jesus is going to be born. So by this time, all of the Old Testament canon is completed. There's, there's no new revelation. We are awaiting uh, Emmanuel, God with us, right? We are awaiting the Messiah. So imagine that you bring together all of the prophets and all of the experts of the law, and they are going to have a summit in which they are going to present a theological paper. And I want you to imagine with me that one of those guys presents a paper on Psalm 22 and how Psalm 22 predicts the crucifixion of the Messiah. Okay, Turn with me and read Psalm 22 and see if you can see how this relates to the cross. Let's just, read, uh, let's just read the first three or four verses together. Psalm 22 says in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find, but I find no rest. But yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Let's just stop right there. Now, does Psalm 22 speak about the cross? What do you guys think? Yeah. What, what, are, some, what are some ways that you know 
that Psalm 22 speaks about the cross. Yeah, verse 1 is what Jesus said on the cross, right? What's something else? There's a few things in there. We go down, and he says, um, But I am a worm and not a man scorned my mankind and despised by people. Sounds like John wrote that, doesn't it? That's exactly what happened to Jesus. Right after that, he says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Is that not the scene of the cross? But how do you know that? You know that because you have the account of the cross, right? Like Chris said, you read it, and it says, and Jesus literally says from the cross, My God, my God, why have I forsaken you? Why have you forsaken me? But imagine in 10 BC, 10 years before Jesus, like 40, 50 years before the cross even comes onto the scene. And they're having a conference. All of this has already been written. And somebody presents a paper to the group on how that speaks to the, the Messiah's crucifixion. Man, you got some mad Jews up in there, okay? They're all going to be saying, man, what are you talking about? The, the Messiah is going to reign on a throne. That's about David. That's about David's struggles. That's about David in the midst of despair. That's about David crying out to God that God would deliver him. This is obviously what David was feeling and what David was thinking and what David wrote. Stop misrepresenting David like that. And you know what? They'd be, they'd be right. All of those things are true about Psalm 22. You see, they were able to see enough of the gospel to know that it was there, but they didn't have the full picture. They didn't have the full picture. You and I sit in a privileged spot in human history. A privileged spot. How often we read the Bible and we read about the parting of the Red Sea or think, man, if I could have just seen that. If people could see that, then, then man, everybody would believe. We have seen so much more than that. We are on this side of the resurrection. We have all of the prophecies of Christ fulfilled. All of the promises kept. All of the word of God fulfilled. Yet we still look at that and we think, well, I, don't, I don't know about that. I'm not so sure about that, right? We're in a privileged position. If, if, if Isaiah could have come and he could have spent 10 minutes in our shoes with our knowledge, he would have probably given up his whole life for it. Just to be able to see what we have seen and to know what we know and to hear the accounts that we have and just to, just to spend it reading Matthew or Mark or Luke or John and about how the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 comes to be fulfilled in Christ Jesus on the cross only to be raised from the dead. So it's important that we understand when we read the Old Testament that it was not fully understood by the people how exactly it would be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. It's like sometimes, you know, we read it, we read the New Testament, and we, we realize, like, and, and we think about how the disciples weren't getting it, or how the Jews of the day weren't getting it, and like we kind of are like, how do you not see this? Well, y'all, it's a lot easier to see things looking back, isn't it? My dad had this saying, it used to drive me crazy, hindsight's twenty twenty, son, hindsight's twenty twenty, son. I didn't even know what that meant until I was 25, you know? 
But when it comes to the Bible, that's the truth, isn't it? That we're able to see, see depth in the Old Testament. We're able to see it kind of in HD in a way that the Jews could only have dreamed of. Could, have only, could only have, have dreamed of. Because I think now, if we were to bring David in, and we say, David, you wrote Psalm 22. So, Psalm, so, so we're on this side, David, and you, you know, you're in heaven. You kind of know what happened with the whole Jesus thing and the, the crucifixion and the cross. So, so, so David, is it unfair of us to read this and to think about the cross? And David said, absolutely not. Man, read this and worship Christ. Read this and think about Christ. I couldn't see all of that then. I knew there was a bigger picture in play. I didn't really know what was going on. But man, looking at that, I can see that what I was saying was only a shadow of what was to come. That I was only pointing to a greater Savior that was to come. That I was only languishing on behalf of all of the creation. Languishing that would ultimately be totally resolved through Christ. Yes, look at this and think about the cross. Did I know what was happening when I wrote it? No. But is this about the cross? Absolutely, this is about the cross. The final point for tonight. The Old Testament writers truly understood some things that they described. All right, so let's not oversell their ignorance here. There is another school of thought that says out there that, well, You can't attribute anything to Jesus to anybody in the Old Testament because they didn't know anything about Jesus. Well, that's just absolutely not true. It's absolutely not true. As a matter of fact, think about when uh, the, the... the scribes and the chief priest, Herod brings them in, and he's kind of on his like paranoia, you know, Stalin kind of like trip, and he's asking them, all right, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Because everybody's saying that he's coming, everybody's saying, and so... I'm, I'm kind of digging being the whole king thing, and he's not taking my throne from me. So where, where is the Messiah to be born? And what do, they, what do they all say? Well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. That was crystal clear to them. It was, it was not, Micah 5, 2 was not a mystery to the Old Testament saints. That once that was given, they knew the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It was, it was crystal clear. John, in John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus says this about Abraham. All right. So Abraham precedes precedes Moses. He precedes like pretty much everything, okay? Like the the story of the patriot, the story of God and his covenant people kind of begins right here with Abraham, right? This is what he says. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. Now, did did Abraham see the resurrected Christ, the Lord Jesus, the way that all of us understand and know and see? Did he see it with that kind of clarity? No, he didn't see that. But he saw some view of it. He saw some glimpse of it. it. When he's up on the mountain on Genesis 22 and he's prepared to lower the dagger into the heart of his son Isaac and the Lord prepared prepares for him a ram that is sitting there waiting, a substitute for Isaac. He saw some glimpse that the Lord was going to send a perfect lamb to be slaughtered on behalf of mankind to crush the head of the serpent so that he might be saved. This is what the Bible tells us about Abraham, that his faith was credited to him as righteousness, right? Not, not his good works, 
not the things that he knew. Matter of fact, Abraham does a lot of bad things. But he has faith in the Lord. And his faith is credited to him as righteous. And what is that? That's the gospel, is it not? That's the gospel. That faith in the provision of God for deliverance from your sin and salvation forever. That is the gospel. And Abraham had faith in the gospel. It says this, Moreover, the content of these visions that the Old Testament saints correctly grasped is nothing less than the gospel itself, albeit in types and shadows. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3.8, And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. That the Old Testament is about the sufferings of the Christ, albeit in outline form. It's not in clear. It's the, the details haven't been filled in. The manuscript is not robust, but in outline form, the skeleton is there that God is going to provide a way that sinners might be reconciled to him and those who have faith in God's provision and devote themselves with passion and love to the name of God might be saved. How is someone saved in the Old Testament? I've been asked that a lot. Someone is saved in the Old Testament by the gospel. Not by keeping the law. Not by offering the right sacrifices at the right times. Not by eating the right foods all the time. That's not what saves you in the Old Testament. That's what sets you apart. That's what marks you as a person of God. That's what, that's what shows you as a person passionate about godliness and holiness. But what saves you in the Old Testament? Grace. Grace. Because there was not a single Old Testament saint that perfectly upheld the law. There's not a single Old Testament saint that we don't read about his warts to. There's not a single Old Testament saint that could perfectly match the holiness laid out for us in the law of Moses. And what made up for the deficit? Grace. Grace. It's the forbearance of God looking ahead to his own provision through Christ Jesus in which he would be both just and justifier. Making us right with him without compromising his own justice. You are saved in the Old Testament by the provision of God through Jesus Christ just as you are saved in the New Testament. You just don't see it in the same amount of clarity. That's why there's a new covenant. That's why there's a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 teaches us that, the God, that God is going to make a new covenant for his people. A covenant in which he is not going to give uh, tablets of stone with his law, but instead he is going to write the law on the tablets of your heart. He's going to fill you with the Spirit. and He is going to make you faithful in a way that you are completely incapable of in the old covenant. Rendering the old covenant totally obsolete. So what is the New Old Testament about? The Old Testament is about Christ. What is the New Testament about? The New Testament is about Christ. Now understanding that theologically, when we come back together in a couple of weeks, I want us to kind of ask some principles. Okay, now, I'm, I'm reading Deuteronomy, man. Like, how do I get there? You know? I, I am, uh, I'm knee-deep in 1 Chronicles. How do, I, how do I get to Jesus in 1 Chronicles? All right? 
So we're going we're gonna to dive back into that when we come together in a couple of weeks. Tony, would you mind closing us in prayer tonight?